0: in this episode. The key question I'm really interested in is what is the self? What is consciousness when viewed introspectively? What is its structure and what are the parts and what do those different parts do?
1: The idea that this, this uh, toggle, as you put it, between these two systems, uh, like on the one hand there's exerting conscious control, on the other hand, there's letting yourself just be run by your subconscious associational mechanism. Um, what's the big deal? Um, why is this so glorious to toggle it one way rather than the other? Um, the point I just want to make is that the effects of toggling one way compounds tremendously over time. So any one given choice to toggle it to choose to think or choose to focus rather than not, is not going to have dramatic, obvious life-changing effects, but repeated over time, over years, it can make a huge difference. Um, It could make the difference between uh, having an awesome life and having a horrible, crappy, boring life. Uh, I've been doing so much on selfishness, but I I do have, there are other aspects of philosophy that I'm interested in, in talking about. So I invite everybody else in the world to uh, get in touch with me. And if you want to have a philosophical conversation about anything, I invite you to. Uh, If you want to throw in a donation, that will help. Um, And I encourage you to subscribe to my my channel or f- follow me on facebook i don't usually do this kind of plugging for my own stuff in my videos but i'm trying to grow my my channel and uh build an audience and be able to support myself uh you should probably
0: this. do this at the beginning instead of after two and a half hours <laughs> yeah maybe I should, nobody uh, gets to the all the way to the end
1: i should uh, cut this clip up and uh paste it in the front Welcome to another episode of my YouTube channel. Usually I start my videos by saying uh, this is another episode of the Selfishness Project. You might know that I have a lot of videos on the topic of selfishness, but I've actually uh, decided recently to expand my horizons beyond just the topic of selfishness. So today I'm here with uh, Sean Silsby who I met several years ago at an objectivist conference. And recently, I got in touch with him again through um, maybe it was Facebook. I've been on active on Facebook recently, talking about my selfishness projects. And uh, some people got in touch with me uh, um, about, they expressed interest in having philosophical conversations, not necessarily just on the topic of selfishness. And that was something that I was happy to do. My actual area of research specialty when I was a graduate student was not the topic of selfishness. It was actually, as a master's student, I focused on free will. And as a doctoral student, I focused on the philosophy of mind, also known as the metaphysics of consciousness, or the mind-body problem, the relation of the mind and the brain um, is also how it's sometimes put. And Sean got in touch with me and he said that he was interested in discussing some issues that were more related to that kind of research that I just described doing when I was a graduate student. So uh, I was happy to uh, have a conversation about those kinds of topics and he generously offered to pay uh, for, uh, for doing this. So, uh, I was especially happy, um, to, to have this conversation with him. So he, he, uh, had a list of topics that he sent me in advance and some links to videos, uh, that were relevant to topics he wanted to talk about. So I'm just going to turn this over to, to you, Sean, and let you bring up in whatever order you'd like, uh, whatever you'd like to discuss, and then we'll just go from there.
0: Sure. Uh, So as you said, your normal line of uh, discussion on your YouTube channel is about selfishness. And I think we could tie this discussion into that a little bit, because the key question I'm really interested in is, what is the self? and I think there are multiple senses in which that is used. The one in ethics may be a little peripheral, peripheral to what I'm interested in here. Um, the questions that I'm more interested in are about sort of the structure of consciousness and the mind, uh, not so much the metaphysical relationship of consciousness and matter, the sort of core mind-body problem that you might be more familiar with, but more. Uh, what is consciousness when viewed introspectively? What is its structure and what are the parts and what do those different parts do? Uh, So maybe we could start, uh, you know, your background, I think, is outside of academic philosophy is Rand's philosophy, objectivism. I'm also pretty familiar with objectivism. So maybe we could start by talking about kind of the objectivist view of the mind, get clear on what that is, uh, and then maybe we can branch out and talk about other, other theories, uh, some things that I've been reading recently. Does that sound reasonable to you?
1: Yeah, that sounds good.
0: So I think the um, so I'll say my view of the mind up until recently, I think, matches fairly well with Rand's view, or at least the view of other objectivist philosophers like Harry Binswanger, which is that there are sort of two basic pieces to it. There's the subconscious which is perhaps identified with the physical brain. It's sort of various processes that run beneath the level of consciousness that you're not normally aware of, uh, but that provide material to the conscious mind, which is the second part. Uh, And I think the, the common sense view and also the objectivist view is that the conscious mind is this sort of active entity that takes the material provided by the subconscious, does things with it, and then perhaps sends it back or produces actions uh, in the body, right? Um, And the conscious mind is often associated with volition. We say that uh, at least some of the actions of the conscious mind are volitional. They're not determined by anything uh, in the physical brain. They're generated by some sort of mental entity that we can associate with that consciousness. Uh, so I, I'd be interested to get your comments on that model. Do you think that's an accurate description of the basic view here? And what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, that does sound like an accurate description of the objectivist view of the mind. and moreover, I I find the view myself to be plausible. Um, it seems to cohere well with my own experience. Um, introspecting on the nature of my own minds, uh, it does seem that uh, I have, I experience control, volitional control over my mind. I can choose to think. Um, I can control the actions of my body. Uh, So, and it does seem that there's this kind of interaction between the the subconscious and the conscious minds, where the the subconscious, which you could think of it as as the brain, it somehow sends up material into the conscious minds, um, things that you're not currently thinking about, like the fact that um, JFK was shot in 1963. Uh, That wasn't something that was in my consciousness uh, 10 minutes ago, but somehow that information popped into my conscious mind right now. So where was that information before? It was in my conscious mind. Well, that's what we call the subconscious, where this material which is not presently in consciousness but could be in consciousness um, is located. And when it's, when it's not in consciousness, um, it's stored in somehow in neural form. I guess there's neural connections. That's a scientific question, Um, exactly how it's stored physically, but somehow it's stored physically and it had to to get stored physically in the first place. I think it had to enter through consciousness. So at, at one time I read a book or saw a movie or something about JFK and I was conscious of that what I was reading or of the the movie I was watching. And that conscious experience got stored physically somehow inside of me. And then after the movie was over or after I finished reading the book, um, that information is no longer in my conscious mind, yet it has the potential to come back into consciousness um, as it just did, uh, as some random facts that I thought of a, a minute ago. So I think there is, and sometimes it's happen, it happens automatically. It, I wasn't deliberately fishing for that fact, but that's what popped up for whatever reason. Um, so there was something automatic, automatic about that. It wasn't volitional. I mean, the, the maybe it was volitional that I wanted some example of some fact that was stored in my consciousness and I said, in effect, um, brain, give me something. <laughs> uh, shoot something up to me to give me an example. And maybe that act of requesting an example was volitional, um, but that that particular fact came up uh, was not volitional. Um, that's just whatever the brain automatically sent me. So this is just one example. Emotions are another example of something that I think introspectively it seems right to me that uh, you feel certain ways without choosing to i don't volitionally decide now i'm going to be happy or now i'm going to be sad or angry or delighted no you just you just automatically experience these emotions um, in a way that's something like thinking is not automatic so i could assign myself a math problem right now, I could say, what is the product of uh, 73 and 15? And I could try to do in my head 73 times 15. And I take some effort. It, the, the answer does not automatically pop into my mind as is the case with like two times two, right? Because that's so simple and automatized. I haven't automatized 73 times 15 or 12, whatever I said. Um, so that I can observe myself introspectively working on. And at any moment, I have this sense I can stop. I could start multiplying in my head the ones column and then the ones times the tens column. And then I could say, ah, this is too much effort. I, I just wanna stop this. And then I might just give up, uh, choose to give up in the middle of that problem. And that's a different experience then the experience of having an emotion where it just hits you and you don't feel like you, you really had a choice about that hitting you. So um, I've gone on for a while here, but um, just to summarize, I think the way you described the objectivist view of the mind and its relation to the subconscious or the brain, it sounded accurate and it also seems to cohere with my experience of things. So uh, I'll throw it back to you.
0: Okay. Yeah, so one of the things uh, I'm interested in is you you mentioned a couple examples of actions that seem to be volitional or voluntary in some way versus things that just happen automatically. So for example, a fact might just pop into your head, but it might pop into your head in response to a question that you asked from your conscious mind to your your subconscious mind in this model. So one of the things I've always been a little unclear on in the objectivist view is, what exactly is volitional in that type of action? Um, So there's this core choice, what's often called a fundamental choice or primary choice uh, in objectivism to focus your mind, right? And I think different people have maybe interpreted that in different ways and maybe it's not entirely clear Uh, What that actually what Rand actually meant by that or what other objective philosophers actually mean by that and then how that relates to more concrete examples of voluntary action like uh, Doing a math problem like you just described like exerting that effort to uh, Multiply two numbers together or asking yourself a question and getting a response from your subconscious Uh, and in some sense it seems like in all of the cases where you perform some sort of concrete action like that, it doesn't just happen in a vacuum. Like, uh, if you are asking yourself a particular question, say, uh, when was JFK assassinated? Like, I I don't, you know, 1963 doesn't just pop into my head like that. Maybe you've studied history a little more recently than I have. Uh, But yeah, so I have to do some I have to exert some mental effort, and there is definitely a voluntary, or you could say volitional experience associated with that effort, but the actual question itself doesn't seem to be produced by consciousness, right? That question itself had to come from somewhere. So uh, in some sense, it seems like there's a loop where the subconscious is maybe driving a a goal or purpose, and then there's some effort involved in maintaining that purpose or uh, applying it in specific ways. And then, so your subconscious might give you a question like, uh, when was JFK assassinated? Then there's a, the exertion of effort there to go back and retrieve the next bit of information, which then moves you forward in your thinking process. Uh, so yeah so I'm get, I guess I'm curious what you think is directly volitional in those types of actions versus what uh ultimately comes from the subconscious
1: Yeah that's that's a good question I do think sometimes at least questions are subject uh suggested by the subconscious Uh, they're not something that you deliberately choose to ask. A question might just pop into your head. Um, And then once it's in your, or into your mind, uh, if we want to be more precise, head being a physical thing and mind being something that you might think is non-physical, that gets into another discussion. So yeah, I do think sometimes questions can just pop into your minds uh, or or head loosely speaking. And then it's, maybe it's more clear that uh, whether to pursue those questions is volitional. Like the math example I was giving, you could sense uh, as you're doing this, as it's uh, taking effort on your part to continue this problem, you can exert the willpower to continue trying to find the answer to that question or you can give up. Um, but the question itself uh, might be non-volitional. Uh, but I, I think maybe some questions are volitional. Like you, you could have the question, what is the right question to be asking on, on some problem? Um, if if you uh, if you, I don't know what would be a good example of this, but sometimes I've heard this saying um, that's you know, a large part of getting the right answer to some problem is asking the right questions. It's not always obvious wh- what the right question is to ask, and but once you do ask, it's I, which I think is a way of framing some issue in the right way, then. Uh, certain answers which would be helpful are gonna be more readily available to you. Um, I, I'm just, just to make this a little more concrete, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, a question related to the climate debate. Uh, the one question you could ask is, um, how do we minimize human impact on the climate? Another question you could ask is how do we maximize human flourishing and Alex Epstein uh, is very uh, much focused on this issue of framing things in the right way and he thinks the focus in the the climate debate in the culture should rather be on this latter question. The goal shouldn't be to um, minimize human impact, it should be to maximize human flourishing. So, but... It might not be obvious that's the right question to ask. How do we maximize human flourishing? Um, So there might be an effortful process required in order to figure out what that question is. What is the right question to ask? Um, So uh, although there might be some questions that do just pop into your mind automatically, there might be other questions which don't but which are important to figure out. Um, And it requires some kind of effort to to, uh, get to those right questions. So I don't wanna make a principle, like every time a question is in your mind, it's something that's uh, popped up automatically. Um, Whereas there's some So I'm thinking
0: more of, so, there's kind of the act of asking a question abstractly uh, you know, with the content removed. Uh, And then there is the content of the specific question that you're, you're asking. And it seems to me that that content always ultimately has to come from your subconscious. You know, I mean, just if for no other reason than usually the question comes up in the form of like an English sentence, right? Your conscious mind doesn't, uh, can't, I wouldn't think your conscious mind can just generate English sentences on its own. All of that material ultimately has to come up from some brain subsystem that essentially generates these strings, strings of text, right? So do you think the core volitional act is just kind of exerting effort when, so your subconscious notifies you that there's some effort needed here to ask a question? And then your conscious mind decides: Do I exert that effort, or do I not? And this maybe relates to Rand's framing of the the core choice as to think or not, um, versus kind of the specific content of your thinking, which maybe always comes from the brain ultimately.
1: Yeah, that's that sounds right. We so what we have direct control over is whether we exert that effort to think. Or not, and the particular content that comes into our minds isn't directly under our control. And maybe in some cases, there's a way in which it is. But I think there's there's something right about what you said, um, and it's in that it's. What's directly under our control is performing a certain action with our minds, deciding to think, or she also sometimes puts it as focus, the primary choice is to focus or not. And that's an action, uh, focusing your mind. That's not uh, getting a certain content to come into your mind. Although, once you do uh, choose to engage in that action, that's going to, cause certain contents to come in which might have been different had you not made that choice so if you're if you're not making the choice to to focus or to think there could very well still be things that come into your mind but they might not be as relevant as they could be so you're your, your subconscious can just make these random associations with things um, and stuff can pop into your mind, which isn't the most relevant. Whereas if you exert this sense of control over your mind, if you seize the reins, so to speak, then it's more likely that relevant content is going to enter in, your mind, uh, which would be more helpful for whatever task you then decide to pursue.
0: So, if the volitional choice really boils down to this one core choice to focus or not or to think or not, to exert effort or not, however you want to frame it, do you think there is ever a benefit to not doing that? Do you think there's a reason? So, so one, of the, one of the issues I've had with this concept is um, it seems like in any particular choice you make, there's sort of a maybe three possibilities. There's either you, so say you're facing sort of a a binary choice, like exert the effort to ask this question or not, or ask this question versus this question, right? Either there's something already in your conscious mind that indicates that one of these choices is better than the other, in which case it seems like it would always benefit you to make that choice. Or there's No sense in your mind that one of the choices is better than the other, in which case you might as well just pick randomly. Um, Maybe there's just those two possibilities. I, I I thought there was a third one, but it basically what I'm getting at is like If the fundamental choice is this choice to focus or not. And it's always better to focus than not to focus. What's the point of having the choice why why is this powerful and important uh that human beings have this this fundamental free will choice Uh, and wouldn't we be better off for example if we were just hardwired evolutionarily to always make the right the right choice and so so let me rephrase that in, in the latter context the sort of evolutionary context given those those two cases where you're making a choice and there's some sense in your mind that one of the choices is better than the other. It seems like, evolutionarily, it would benefit you to be hardwired to always make the choice that uh, you think is better. And if there's no uh, obvious better choice, you might as well just throw a, throw a die you know, or flip a coin and, and make one of those choices. So what, is really, what do you think is really the importance of the ability to make that choice to focus or not.
1: So, on the the evolution point, there might let's suppose that we would be better off uh, evolutionarily if we were automatically wired so that we focus our minds rather than not. So there wasn't really a choice to focus or not. We just automatically went into focus. And there might be times when we, it's good not to focus, like if you're trying to fall asleep, maybe it's, it's conducive to that to let your mind unfocus and just go into a state of drift, not be at the reins, uh, very alert. And
0: uh, But even in that, that type of situation, you would have to have some sense in your conscious mind that this is the right thing to do right now right that it's okay right now to go sli- to go to sleep in which case it seems like in that scenario there's still kind of a, an optimal choice that you could be wired to to make just speaking hypothetically obviously it doesn't it doesn't quite work like this because we know we can make bad choices but just uh, you know there seems to be this sense in objectivism that this choice to focus or not is really important that it sort of underlies uh, ethics and even the ability to have knowledge and uh, make arguments. And I'm trying to get at kind of what is, wh- why is that really? If, it, if the choice really just boils down to focus your mind or not, which seems like a very kind of simplistic and not super useful on its face kind of choice.
1: Well, I mean, it is. It it could just be a fact of human nature. I think it plausibly is that we have this fundamental choice to make, and it might not be a complicated choice. There's just this this basic alternative: think or not, or focus your mind or not. And, you know, could evolution come up with something better so that there's. An even better way for us to achieve our survival than to um, have this ability to choose to focus. Um, I don't know, may- maybe in a billion or a trillion years of additional evolution or scientific advancement, uh, some other way of uh, achieving human well being will come into being. And then at that point, Um, you know, there might be something else we could do that would be uh, the best way for us to act, assuming we have a choice. (laughs) Um, I mean, perhaps in a trillion years, we will evolve into a a non-volitional species that can survive even better than the current volitional species that we are. It's kind of a sci-fi thing to think about. But um, in any case, given the beings that we are at this point in evolutionary history, uh, it's a fact, or at least objectivism holds that it's a fact that we do have this choice. And it it is of fundamental importance given our nature that we choose in a certain way. I mean, our lives will go much better if we do choose to focus and think, than if we don't choose to focus and think. Um, I mean, all these technology that we, we uh, use in our lives to make our lives go better as a product of thinking, um, and that was volitional, thinking is a volitional, we had to choose to think to create all the, discover all the scientific laws and so forth that were then implemented in technology. Um, so it was hugely important that we made this choice, that we make the choice to think it's, it's fundamental to our well-being as human beings. So I think that's why it's so important. And I think it's a separate issue as to, you know, well, could there be some other species, um, that might, uh, evolve in some other way, um, where we don't have to make this choice, I don't know that you're exactly asking that question, but um, I think the like the, the issue of what evolution has come up with so far, I don't think really impacts the the issue of whether, given what it's come up with to date, um, whether in our current context, it's it's important that we make this choice. Let me pause there and throw it back to you.
0: Yeah, um, I think that, so that basically matches kind of what I expected that, that you would say, or yeah. what I thought about this, this same kind of problem. And it basically kind of boils down to, well, maybe you could construct another species that didn't face this choice and always made the optimal choice but that's not the way it works, right? We do face this choice, it just, that's just a fact and therefore you have to continually make this choice. But if that is the case, it seems to me like having free will, if that's all free will is, is kind of a disadvantage rather than an advantage. It means there's some part of you that just doesn't work all the time so, so imagine, uh, you know, there's this sense of the choice to focus is kind of flipping a switch. And I, th- I don't know if you'd agree with this analogy, but I kind of think of that as sort of toggling between two systems. There's this the, uh, automatic sort of subconscious, just random association system that can run your life if you're not in focus. And if, you're, if you make this focus choice, it sort of flips control to this second system that is more deliberative, uh, that involves conscious decisions rather than subconscious decisions. And maybe objectivism would associate with that is consciousness, uh, that second system that's taking control of uh, your actions. Um, but it seems like, yeah, if that's all the choice is to toggle between those two systems and it's always beneficial to you to use the second system, the more conscious deliberative system instead of the random subconscious associational system, it seems like the choice to focus is just sort of a burden that is placed on you by your nature. It's like, oh, I wish I could just automatically turn on this second system and think uh, consciously instead of of subconsciously all the time. does that, does that kind of make sense to you? So I, I just like, so the way Rand talks about volition, it's it's sort of this great thing that uh, man can be heroic because he can make choices and uh, his life isn't determined by anything prior. But you, based on this sense of just the choice to focus or not, it seems like you could validly take the alternative view that's maybe more pessimistic that well, there's the part of you that does the right thing just doesn't work all the time. And you have to constantly put in this effort to keep it going. Uh, And that doesn't seem that powerful or uh, interesting in in certain ways. I don't know. Does that that kind of make sense to you? What would be your response to that kind of way of framing the issue? Uh
1: it's so you use this term burden and so from from that way of framing it i can see how it might seem kind of a drag to to have this free will (laughs) if wouldn't it be great if if uh i could just kind of coast and not have to exert this effort um but there's i mean there's a I think there's there's another way to look at it. You might see this as as liberating. Um, and so instead of being confined to follow some deterministic program, uh, we are we are freed from that. Our, our volitional capacity allows us to do something new. Um, so in a way, it might seem freeing.
0: So let me, um, don't mean to interrupt you, but I do mean to interrupt you Go just ahead. To, to kind of uh, hit on that point specifically, because I think that's important. There's this sense that having this choice uh, to focus or not frees us from our uh, deterministic program, right? But if all the choice is is sort of toggling another system in your mind, uh, I don't really see how that frees you from the deterministic program. It basically just changes to a different deterministic program that's better, right? Like, the, the type of free will that seems worth having that would seem powerful is free will over specific actions. Um, so. For example, going back to the the types of things we were talking about about asking questions, it seems like the uh the type of free will that would be interesting is if you had free will to generate new questions for yourself out of the blue and not not always just be following questions produced by your subconscious um, if that makes sense so it just seems like that if if uh focus is Kind of kickstarting this thinking process. And then that thinking process just kind of plods along and goes on its own as long as you continue to exert that effort to keep it going. And your only choice is to stop it or keep it going. It doesn't seem like that really frees you from the deterministic program. It's just you're just continually getting new stuff from your subconscious, processing it somehow. You have to exert effort to do that processing and then it goes back and you continue the cycle. Does that kind of make sense?
1: Well as, as a description of how things work, uh, I think it's it's intelligible and I think uh, seems accurate but then there's the question of like how do we how, how to evaluate this. So you, it seems like you want to evaluate this as kind of a, I don't know what the word is, boring or uninteresting, um, not very inspiring kind of picture, whereas um, Rand or might present this as a a glorious um, kind of thing. Um, so is Is it just the evaluation issue here that's, um, I mean, if you.
0: So maybe, uh, so there's this sense, uh, if you're familiar with these types of arguments, maybe you can, can elaborate on them, um, or your understanding of of these types of arguments, but there's, there's a sense in philosophy that we can't have moral judgment or moral responsibility without free will, for example. And that is one of the things that, uh, makes free will seem powerful, uh, that you are now morally responsible for your, your actions, right? And then there's the second argument that, uh, I know is made in objectivism. Uh, I think Nathaniel Brandon made it, uh, Harry Benswanger has made it, that without free will, you can't So basically that if you don't have free will, knowledge is impossible because you are ultimately just everything that you believe and think you know is just determined by physical processes, right? And you don't know the deepest uh, level of causes for your beliefs. So everything that you believe, uh, everything that you want to convince other people of, you had to believe due to physical processes that you're unaware of, right? And that therefore you don't have grounds to say, I believe this because it's true. You, you have to say, I believe it because my genes made me believe it, or you know my atoms bounced around in a certain way and made me, made me believe it, right? And that somehow having free will breaks that, uh, that deterministic spell and allows you to have knowledge and know that you believe something because it's true not because you were determined to believe it. And I, I guess I'm skeptical that the kind of free will that exists in objectivism really breaks that spell if it's really just toggling another system that uh, is less random and more structured, uh, deliberative thought, if that makes sense. And same same thing for the kind of moral argument. Uh, it seems like so if, you, if you're not in focus, your actions could be kind of random just based on whatever subconscious associations are going on. Maybe you go punch somebody just because you get mad at them and you're not, you're not conscious of it, and that's just what you automatically do. Whereas if you were in focus, your more deliberative mind would take over and come up with a reason why punching them is bad. But ultimately that reason still has to come from your subconscious somewhere. It's just coming from a different part of your subconscious. So if you were in focus and your subconscious didn't produce a reason why you shouldn't punch somebody, you might still punch them. So it seems like you're ultimately still kind of at the mercy of your unconscious brain processes, regardless of whether you are in focus or not. It's just a different type of brain processes that govern your action.
1: So I made the point before that when you're in focus, more relevant content will pop into your minds when you choose to answer some question. So I'm I'm a little re- reluctant to go along with the the idea that you're at the mercy, like when you put it that way. I mean, in some sense, you're not controlling what comes up, but in some sense, you are. Like, you might not um, have control over the the exact thing that comes up, but you might have control over the general category of of thing that comes up if you exert this control. So, um, I'm trying to think of how to make this concrete like if you if you ask um, some question uh, that's, i don't know um, <laughs> let's let's see what pops up into my mind um as as a example question uh what did I eat three days ago for for breakfasts, um, well, I don't know. This is if this is a good example because I always eat the same thing. <laughs> um, uh, I have a, a bowl of oatmeal with a banana. Um, but I guess if it's maybe if it's a question where it's not the answer is not obvious because it's not always the same, um, then. Uh, then you would more likely see the advantage of of being in focus. I I wish I had a better example um, ready to hand here. Maybe the, the, uh, I don't know if the climate question would work well here, like um, the difference between asking what minimizes human impact versus what maximizes human flourishing? Uh, so here are the uh, no, I don't think that's going to okay, what that's getting at um, two different types of questions whereas I think I want two different types of answers. So maybe one one type of or one category of answer that might come to your mind is maybe maybe this is better. Um, what kind of career should I pursue? And one type of answer that could occur to you is, um, well, what's a prestigious thing? What are, what are people in society think is good? What are other people doing? Uh, maybe I should be a doctor or, or a lawyer. Um, it's kind of a stereotyped answer of what a prestigious career might be. Another category of answer that could occur to you is, um, well, what do I like to do? What what do I enjoy doing? Whether or not it's seen as prestigious by other people. So is does the choice to focus make one of those types of answers come up rather than the other maybe if you're if you're unfocused you will more likely uh it, more likely irrelevant considerations will come into minds like you know what are, what do other people think about this career or what does my mother want me to do as opposed to What am I really passionate about? Assuming that's a more relevant consideration. Um, I think, so going back to this idea of being at the mercy of your subconscious, I, I suspect that you're more likely to get relevant information popping up if you exert this control than if you don't. And in that way, you're, you're not at the mercy, you're not at, least, you're not at the total mercy. You might not get the right answer, the most relevant consideration uh, popping into your mind uh, at first. Maybe you'll think, oh, well, I'm passionate about history. I do like studying that, which is true in my case. But I also like studying philosophy. And so how do I integrate those? Do I make one a hobby? In the other, my central purpose? If so, which one? Um, And that's this is something I've actually thought about. Um, But, and I think I'm, I mean, I can see myself having this internal dialogue about what career to pursue while I'm in focus, whereas if I, I guess, if I were just unsatisfied where, with where my career was at a certain point and I just emotionally feel bad about it, I know there's something not right about it, and but I just kind of stew in my negative emotion, um, I might just, I don't know, latch on to the first thing that pops in oh, uh. My brother, he seems he seems successful and making a lot of money and he works in uh, IT. So maybe I should just do IT, information technology. Yeah, I'm going to do that. And then I to start Googling that online, finding out what job openings there are. But it really has no attachment at all to what I've been passionate about for years. I mean, it's a very, I'm not really interested in that. Um, but I think if i if I am exerting this control over my thought process, then I think I will be attuned to the right category of um, suggestions from my subconscious so it would be more like deciding between focusing on philosophy or history rather than um, information technology or some other random more or less random field as far as my life is concerned um, which my subconscious might propose to me if I'm not exerting this control. So, um, so I've been going on for a while here, so let me just pause it and uh, turn it back over to you.
0: Yeah, so I think that, uh, so maybe let's, let's move on to a slightly different topic. But I think that, so that basically matches my understanding of kind of what the choice does, this this choice to think or focus or whatever, it, it will cause different types of things to come up from your subconscious. And those will probably be better things than the things that would, would randomly be um, produced out of focus, right? Um, but it still just doesn't seem like this kind of transformative choice that has the extreme significance that is is sometimes placed on it, just because it's, it's such a basic choice to just kind of do a certain type of action versus, yeah, I I would frame it in terms of kind of using a certain type of system to uh, control your actions versus using a different type of system. And maybe this gets into some of the other, the other material I wanted to talk about on kind of the different views of how the mind works and the, the nature of the self as sort of the agent of, of action. Um, so, as I wrote to you uh, earlier, you know my my philosophical background, if you can call it that, I'm not a philosopher, but just sort of as a layman and and somewhat of a, a hobbyist philosopher, I guess, uh, is primarily grounded in objectivism from when I was in high school, right? Um, but in the past couple of years, I've been getting interested in this uh, mindfulness meditation material. And I started, I started doing that as sort of a form of therapy. There are types of uh, therapies for anxiety and depression that involve uh, meditation as part of them. So that's kind of how I got into it. But then I started reading some of the more, uh, you could call it secular Buddhist material, I guess, from people like Sam Harris, Robert Wright, uh, this guy that goes by Kaldasa. Um, And they get into more sort of the theory behind meditation and the idea that you can use it not only to kind of calm yourself down, reduce stress and anxiety and such, but that you can use it as uh, a way to kind of discover the nature of the mind. Right. And basically the idea. Uh, so the, the primary place I'm drawing this material from, I guess, is Sam Harris's uh, app. So he has a meditation app where he has like an introductory course that you go through for 50 days. And then he has various other courses from different people that you, you go through and he has daily daily meditations. Right. And his whole thing, if you read his book or go through the course, is about breaking what he calls the illusion of the self. right? And I think there are multiple things that are are meant by that. But basically, the idea is that as you become a sort of more advanced meditator, as you're able to calm your mind, stop getting lost in the thoughts that kind of automatically bombard you, uh, and get a clearer picture of what's actually going on in your mind, this idea that there is sort of a central entity that is making decisions and uh, making volitional choices. And even uh, he thinks that is the subject of experience, the sense that there is this self entity kind of goes away or is seen to be illusory. Right. Um, And, you know, I'm not an advanced meditator. I'm not an enlightened Buddha. Right. But I've seen sort of as I progressed in this material and done more of the uh, daily meditations and so forth, I can see what they're talking about, right? There is this sense of when you just observe what's going on in your mind, uh, more and more as you, as you start to see it less clouded by all the, the chaos that, that normally goes on, there's a sense that everything is just sort of happening, and the um the model of the mind that maybe seems to fit this better than the model we've been talking about is a model of the mind where there are multiple different systems or subsystems that are all kind of doing their own thing at the same time and uh depending on various various things we could say whether you're in focus or not, uh, I think it's still valid to make that kind of uh, distinction, you know what mood you're in, etc. Different subsystems may become dominant and drive your thoughts and actions in different ways. But ultimately um, all these subsystems are sort of operating on a subconscious level and consciousness rather than this active kind of director, of your thoughts and actions is basically just a passive observer. It's kind of a space where all the different subsystems interact with each other. Uh, so your percepts come in from your senses, and then various other subsystems pick those up from consciousness and uh, you know bring up concepts or memories or emotions or, or something like that, and other subsystems will uh, will take that material and run with it. And so this this sort of model of in-focus versus out-of-focus in that uh, model of the mind would become sort of a toggle between a more deliberative, slow, uh, you could say rational subsystem that maybe corresponds to a different part of the brain than more sort of emotion-driven automatic faster subsystems um that might be active when you're not exerting effort or doing voluntary action Uh, and we can maybe talk about whether there's a distinction between voluntary action or or volitional action Um, so i'd be interested to hear kind of your thoughts on that type of model of the mind maybe if you think there's something wrong with it what's wrong with it Uh, especially from the point of view of introspective experience like you know i had heard of this sort of thing Uh, coming, coming from psychologists like experimental psychologists, neuroscientists and such that there's evidence, uh, extrospectively when you look at how the brain works, that it's actually this collection of various systems with no kind of central, uh, manager, but it wasn't really convincing to me until I had that introspective experience that, yeah, that kind of matches what I'm observing in my mind better to me than this model where, I am this central self directing everything, right? Which I think is kind of more of the model you get in objectivism. So, yeah, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on those contrasting views and kind of what is the, what would you think is kind of the introspective evidence for each of them? And and what do you think would be wrong with the more, what sometimes is called the modular mind, the mind as a collection of, of different subsystems?
1: Okay. I uh, just want to make one point before I get into that uh, relating to the previous discussion, which is um, the idea that this this uh, toggle, as you put it, between these two systems, uh, like, on the one hand there's exerting conscious control, and on the other hand there's letting yourself just be run by your subconscious associational mechanism. Um, what's the big deal um, why is this so glorious to toggle it one way rather than the other? Um, the point I just want to make is that the effects of toggling one way compounds tremendously over time. So any one given choice to toggle it, to choose to think or choose to focus rather than not, is not going to have dramatic, obvious life-changing effects but repeated over time, over years, it can make a huge difference. Um, it could make the difference between uh, having an awesome life and having a horrible, crappy, boring life. Um, contrast, you know, uh, James Taggart with uh, Dagny Taggart from Atlas Shrugged. I mean, these are people who, over time, have one has been consistently. Choosing to toggle one way to keep her mind in gear, focused on reality; the other has been not making that choice, and his life is spinning. Sorry for the plot spoilers, anyone who's watching this. Um, uh, his life spins out of control, and you know it's a disaster for him. But she she achieves happiness, um, gets the man she wants, has a beautiful future ahead of her. So on an individual level, over time, uh, the effects are dramatic. And also on a cultural scale, if you have a, a culture of evasion, people not choosing to focus their minds, um, maybe a whole culture who indulges in mystic mysticism, um, you might get something like the Dark Ages. You know, centuries of stagnation and brutality, as opposed to you know the an era like the scientific revolution where people are in the Enlightenment. People are focused, on, their minds are in gear and trying to understand things they deal with and eventually great technology and wonderful things are produced as a result of that. So yeah, and even any given choice, it might not be obvious that there are these two differences, but over time, you know, the effects add up and it is a dramatic difference. So I just wanted to make that point, um, but now, Getting to what you were just talking about, the, of these. Um, so, Sam Harris has this model of the mind, and other people, uh, you, they call it the modular theory of mind, where there's not one central agent in control of things. Rather, there's just this collection of different subsystems. Um, I guess. <laughs> So one thought is, you, I guess you could operate in that way if you, if you toggle it in a certain way, as I've just been saying, like if you, if you consistently don't choose to seize the reins of your own minds, then yeah, maybe it does seem introspectively like there's just these competing factions uh, which aren't really you, but it's just this stuff popping up into your mind and they're just fighting with each other. And, um, one might dominate in a, in a given case, but you've just surrendered your mind to anything that your subconscious might throw up. And it, but that, but it's a choice to surrender your mind in that way at least I think it's plausible that it is, you you don't have to do that. But if you do make that choice, then I can see how introspectively, it could seem like there's no one central agent who's in control of things, but you've kind of chosen to make it that way. Although even then, there might be, even if there's not a central agent controlling things, there might still seem and I haven't done this meditation myself, so I'm not really speaking from firsthand experience here, but just thinking about it now, it seems like it might still seem that there's at least an agent who is aware of what's going on, if not in control of it. So if I do choose to surrender the reins of my mind, um, then I'll just allow myself to be buffeted around Uh, Um, puppet-like. I have lost the sense of control, but I might still have the sense of there's one person who's aware of these competing factions. And I guess you wouldn't, I don't know if you would have the perspective this think that there are these competing factions, unless there were some one unitary thing that's aware of all these different factions. Because if you're just one of these factions, um, then how do you get the perspective at all that there's like this arena of different modules that are competing with each other? Doesn't there have to be some kind of unified perspective on the whole to even get this idea that there are modules uh, within it? that are, you know, jockeying for, for control. So, um, those are a couple of my initial thoughts on this, this theory.
0: So let me describe kind of the, the core experience, at least that I have with this, this sort of meditation, uh, and maybe, you know, it's difficult to describe introspective experience, but maybe that will Indicate why I find this view plausible or why people that uh, promote this type of meditation thinks that it think that it demonstrates this kind of Lack of a central self right so the the basic instruction. There are different types of meditation, but the, the most basic kind is you're you're just trying to keep your attention focused on a specific object, essentially, usually the breath, but it could be an external object. Uh, you know, various sensations in your body or something like that. But the breath is kind of the simplest and most common thing. So you kind of either close your eyes or keep your eyes open and just kind of bring your attention to the experience of breathing in a particular part of your body, your nose or your chest or whatever. And you just try to kind of keep your attention focused there, observing the experience of of that breath and then the experience that people have is their mind just wanders. So, so you could think of the, uh, if there's a sort of central, controlling, volitional self, what that self is trying to do is keep your attention focused on the breath and just just watch, watch the breath, right? And then uh, what happens is various other things come into your mind. Uh, you start noticing things in, in the world or in your visual field or in your body. Right. And your attention just gets pulled on its own away from the breath to something else. Right. So you've completely forgotten that you are trying to focus on the breath. Right. So that if there is that sort of central self that is trying to maintain this purpose of focus on the breath, it's, it's lost control. Right. Um, And then the experience is you maybe spend a couple seconds or maybe a couple minutes kind of lost in this train of thought or experience or whatever that has nothing to do with the purpose you had. And then at some point, there's a kind of aha moment where you remember, oh yeah, I was trying to focus on my breath. And then you come back, right? Um, So the experience is kind of one of you have this purpose That some part of you is trying to hold on to, right? But that part of you, no matter how much effort you put into this, uh, and even some people suggest that putting too much effort into it is actually counterproductive, there is some other part of you that is yanking your attention away from that thing. And uh, when you come back to the purpose that you were trying to do, the experience is not of, of volitional action to where you were aware of what's going on and you chose to get distracted and now come back, it's more an experience of something just happens where that part of you that was trying to focus on the breath has now noticed that it's gone and it just comes back right so there's kind of this continual experience of shuffling between kind of different modes of uh, or one way to frame frame this would be perhaps different systems of the mind are kind of taking control of your attention and pulling it, pulling it in different, in different ways. And I think you can, you know, that's the meditation context. I think you can have that experience just in daily life as well. If you notice you're reading a book or something and your mind wanders, right. Uh, And you notice that your mind has wandered. uh, The experience at that moment is not really of a, volitional choice to come back. It's of, oh, this just happened. I just noticed I was lost. I didn't choose to want to let my attention wander away from what I was reading or doing. It just happened, and now I'm back, right? Um, so I'd be curious to get your perspective on that kind of phenomenon.
1: Yeah, that's. Uh, I was thinking as you were describing that, that I do experience something like that sometimes when I'm trying to sleep sometimes I do try to focus on my breath, thinking that that will help me fall asleep, as opposed to just letting my mind wander over, you know, whatever happened during the day, I'm excited about something that might have happened and my mind wants to go there, but I have to reduce my level of excitement to fall asleep. So I've rightly or wrongly thought that, well, maybe if I just, Try to focus on my breath. Maybe that'll calm me down from the day and help me relax. But then I find myself wandering, uh, my mind wandering to something that happened in the day. And then, at a certain point, I realize, oh, I was supposed to be uh, focused on my breath. Okay, let me let me get back to that. Um, so, and a lot of that, maybe all of that. Um, I don't know about all of it, but uh so is all of that automatic um like once i catch my mind wandering and strain from the the task of focusing on my breath um do i automatically go back to focusing on the breath i'm not sure that i do i think there might be a a moments there kind of interesting to quantify it, like a half seconds, uh, one second, two seconds, exactly how long is this moment, but there might be a moment where I, I have this choice of getting myself back to the task of just concentrating on my breath, or just continue to ride my, my uh, desire to Think about what was happening during the day and I think there might actually be a moment there where it is up to me and I am exerting I don't automatically go one way rather than the other there's a kind of fork in the road and I I I just make a choice which fork to go down or which time to go down so I guess the, the catching of myself as being off, off task, I think that is automatic, but then whether to get back on task or just allow myself to keep drifting onto whatever um, happened during the day, I think that at least I, I think that's, I'm not persuaded that that's not automatic. Sorry, I'm not persuaded that is automatic. I think that might be volitional, whether to get back on task or not. I don't know how you, how do you experience it? Were you saying that even the getting back after you've automatically noticed you're off task, whether to get back on task, does that also seem to you to be automatic?
0: So I think there is, uh, sometimes it seems to just happen. So definitely kind of automatic. Sometimes, there is effort involved. And we can maybe hypothesize about whether effort is synonymous with volition or not. Um, But I think um, so, so let's hypothesize that you do have a volitional choice in that moment to come back to the task that you were trying to do focus on the breath, or to let your mind continue to wander. And maybe let's see if we can get clear on what exactly is making that choice, and what grounds does it have to make the choice one way or the other, right? So one hypothesis here would be, yeah, there's maybe there's effort involved in that choice, at least some of the time. You have to exert effort to uh, come back. Uh, And one hypothesis would, in this sort of mind system, modular mind view, would be there's some part of your brain that has done some calculation and decided, I hesitate to use words like decided because those are kind of consciousness-associated terms, but whatever sort of the physical correlate of deciding something is, uh, some sort of equation, you know, to simplify it decided to exert that effort and come back uh, versus some other times your brain might decide that that uh, effort is not worth uh, exerting and just just let your mind wander I've definitely had both both experiences at, at different times um, and then the alternative hypothesis is there is some sort of central entity that is making that choice that is not determined by any of your brain processes right? Um so just first of all, would you would you say you kind of agree with the second uh hypothesis there that there is sort of a, a central sort of mental entity there that makes that decision to exert that effort or not in that moment?
1: I, th- I yeah, I think at least some of the time. I mean there are maybe there are times where it's it's that there's that fork in the road and something happens in my brain that forces me to go down one of the paths. But even if that's true, I think it's plausible that there, at least sometimes, it doesn't seem like that. It seems like it is up to me as this mental, in this mental entity sense, deciding which path to go down.
0: Okay, so uh, yeah, so I guess if we hypothesize that that is, that is true, I think just the raw experience can kind of satisfy both, both hypotheses. Because um, you don't generally introspect anything, there's no conscious cause for you going one way or the other. You, you're conscious of the sort of potential of doing either of these things. And you sort of experience that decision to go one way or the other as just happening as a first cause. So I say I say just happening, but there is a certain uh, experience in that just happening that's different from the experience of like an emotion or a thought just popping into your mind. And I think the, the additional thing in that kind of voluntary choice is sort of this experience of effort or of uh, what you could call being a self making that that decision, right? Um, so, if we hypothesize that this mental entity is making that decision, I guess what what are the grounds by which it makes that decision? Um, so if that decision is not determined, so okay, so, where I'm going with this is, it seems like that mental entity is sort of identityless in some sense. It's it's without kind of content uh, with which it would make this type of decision. If if that decision is not determined by some, it's not determined by your values or your emotions or you know some physical process that we don't have introspective awareness of. The entity that, so the entity that makes that decision, you have to strip away all these things that you might normally think of as part of yourself, your self-identity, your memories, your um, ideas, thoughts, etc. If you strip all that away, because that can't be a factor in this kind of well, it can't be determinative of this kind of fundamental volitional decision. What is left? It seems like there's not really much left. If that is yourself, if that mental entity is you, it seems like there's not much there. It's just kind of a structureless nothing, right? That makes, that decides, that maybe has a first person experience, but that just kind of decides one way or the other. Right it, does that make sense at all? I'm not sure if I'm communicating this this very clearly
1: i, I think I see what you're getting at um, you're so I think one thing you're you're doing is you're pointing out that there's no motivation for the choice to go one way rather than the other. Uh, yeah, it
0: seems like at some point you know you could go down a chain of I was. I did this action because I was motivated by such and such, but then why did I choose to be motivated by that instead of by some other thing? So one common place this would arise is like, there's a decision that I think is good for me. You know, I want to uh, lay on my couch all day instead of working, right? It's like one possible motive is, uh, I want the feeling of relaxing and laying around all day. And one possible motive uh, is, I know that I need to work to make money and uh, it's not good to just play all day and eat ice cream, right? At some point, there has to be a sort of irreducible decision that is not motivated, right? Because you're choosing between these, these motives, right? And if you strip away all the motives and you strip away all the other factors that you would normally think of as relating to your decision, this core kind of basic choice to go one way or the other seems like it has to be made kind of in a vacuum. It's just, you just do it. Uh, And it doesn't seem like that makes sense logically to me. Uh, And it doesn't, maybe getting back to our discussion of focus uh, earlier, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily powerful to have that choice or, or particularly significant. It's just like, how is that better than randomness in some sense.
1: So I think maybe uh you another way to put your point is that you're you're wondering about the is, is this an arbitrary choice um if there's if there, I guess if there were grounds to choose one way rather than the other uh it wouldn't be, it wouldn't seem arbitrary, but it also wouldn't seem like a choice because whatever those grounds were, um, that would be the cause
0: of you. Yeah, it wouldn't seem, you know, there's, you can talk about whether it's possible to have a non-volitional choice. Like you can go through a thought process of deliberation and you could kind of call that a choice, but in this sort of fundamental sense of volitional choice, yeah, it seems like the ultimate, volitional choice has to be essentially without grounds. Um, And I know there are kind of arguments in in objectivist literature about why that choice is not arbitrary in a technical sense, I guess. But whether you want to call it arbitrary or unmotivated or groundless, it seems like there is that fundamental fact of if you have that sort of irreducible choice, it just kind of is there, and it doesn't seem really distinguishable uh, from if you were just looking at that kind of extrospectively and ignored the experience of um, effort that goes along with it. What's what's different from that choice and just a, a random selection, right?
1: Well, I suppose one might say here that in a way, there's always a motivation that governs one's choice, even the primary choice. And that is that one's always in reality. And I guess there's... So... I mean, is it, there there might be different kinds of motives. So I've heard uh, this, Harry Benzwinger has used, used the term metaphysical motive somewhere. I forget where, to describe the kind of motivation there is for the primary choice, as opposed to what has been called secondary choices. So, um... The choice of uh, what career to have or what to eat for breakfast—these are choices about particular content. Um, so, but if you—if we're before that stage of choosing, like what—if you're already in focus, then you might choose then you might engage in a thought process as to which career you should have or what you should eat for a certain meal. But if you're not in focus yet, um, if you're just kind of drifting in a semi-conscious daze, to use one of Ayn Rand's uh, phrases, is there something that could motivate you uh, to choose... To get into focus, rather than not, and I think there is a there's a sense. I think, at least I have a sense, if I'm drifting, that it would be better for me to to be in focus than not. Um, so I think that sense that I have kind of an implicit emotional sense provides grounds for choosing one way um, on on the primary choice, but it doesn't determine me. It wouldn't be a choice then. It doesn't force me to, to, to go in that way that I have this sense it would be better for me to go in. So I I have this sense that there is an option and that it would be better to go down one horn of the options. Mixing metaphors here. I'm thinking of horns of dilemmas. Uh, One path. I have the sense it would be better to go down one path, namely the focus path, Um, but that I don't have to. It's just up to me. Uh, So I don't know if I've... um, So you think you're you're presenting this as uh, like, why isn't it just arbitrary? And I think what I'm, I guess what I'm suggesting here is that it's not arbitrary because you have this sense or at least I think people in general have the sense that it would be better to go down one path. And I think maybe part of the proof that one really does have this sense is that one feels guilty if one doesn't go down it. I think I've experienced like, oh yeah, I I, I shouldn't have done what I did. I, I had this sense I could have done otherwise and I should have done otherwise than I did. And um, because I didn't do that, I now feel guilty, remorseful, regret. Uh, and I think, I mean, if you have any of the, that kind of experience uh I think that might be some evidence that it's it's not arbitrary because if it really were arbitrary if it didn't make any difference which path you went down then why would you feel regret or or guilt for for going down one one path yet we all feel that sometimes I think at least we all feel guilt in some cases maybe not necessarily in connection with the primary choice but I think I, I I suspect many people feel it in connection with somehow in connection with that primary choice. So I, I think this this sense we have uh, that it's better to choose one way rather than the other takes the arbitrariness out of it. So those are, I mean, that's some initial thoughts I have on that.
0: Okay, can we actually take a quick break? Sure. I don't know if you have the ability to cut Videos later. Oh, I but, I can pause uh, it. Okay, sure.
1: All right. Okay. All right, we're, we're back. I was just thinking that there might be a tension between two things I was saying. Uh, so earlier I said that when I was when I when I try to sleep, uh, sometimes it can be helpful to not choose to focus, to just let your mind drift. Maybe that helps calm calm you down. Um, but here in the last several minutes, we've been talking about how it helps me to sleep, or I think it helps me to sleep uh, not to drift, to focus on this task of my breathing, for instance. And if I were to allow my mind to drift to whatever happened during the day, that would get me excited because maybe something interesting happens. So I'm not sure like what what is the best way to get to sleep? Is it to um, let my mind drift? Um, Or is it to focus my mind on this task of breathing? uh i i don't know maybe it varies from from day to day like maybe if i had a boring day it would be most helpful to just let my mind drift and
0: if you figure that out let me know it's kind of a kind of a scientific question i guess but i also you know i also have sleep issues sometimes and i've tried both ways of letting my mind wander versus uh trying to focus on something and relax count sheep or focus on the breath or whatever and Neither method seems to be foolproof, in my case, at least.
1: Yeah, I've gotten much better at sleep over the years. Um, Maybe in in a kind of different way than we're discussing now. Um, But yeah, I still, I have definitely not mastered the art of getting to sleep. Um, So yeah, maybe that's an area, I think it is an area of... uh, psychology or or medicine that there's a lot of room for improvements and uh maybe it overlaps with philosophy um all this talk about free will what exactly is the self and what do we have control over if anything
0: yeah maybe if you think about that you'll fall asleep more more easily Uh,
1: (laughs) possibly um
0: Yeah, okay. So you brought up a couple things. So so there was this question of kind of whether the choice is arbitrary, and then you brought up as a reason that it might not be arbitrary, that we have emotions like guilt, uh, basically that we have some sense that there, at least in hindsight, there was a right decision and whether we uh, whether we made it or not. And if we feel that we made the right decision, then we might experience positive emotions. If we feel that we made the wrong decision, we might experience negative emotions. And I think that is definitely true. Um, but I think there's sort of a puzzle if you think that there is this, Uh, irreducible choice that you're making like kind of as I was describing earlier all, all these things like emotions like guilt or uh, pleasure or whatever seem like they are a, sort of a, an evolutionary mechanism to try to push you to make certain types of decisions one way or the other right um, and they're not always right um, but if there is this sort of irreducible choice that is not determined by any particular motivation even if you might have some of these things in in consciousness it seems like there is there is a if you if you think that your choice to do X was motivated by a certain factor in consciousness there's kind of a deeper choice to do why did you choose that motivation instead of some other some other one right either your choice was determined by that uh, that emotion or uh, idea or whatever that you had in mind that uh, made you think this choice was right, or you're not determined, and then there is a deeper choice for why you let that be the factor that guides your action rather than some other factor, right? Um, and I'll just say, I think this. This puzzle kind of goes away if you assume that that uh, underlying choice is deterministic or at least made at an unconscious level by some system that you don't uh, have full insight into. So if you assume that there is some sort of brain system that is weighing things in your experience and perhaps other factors that are not in conscious awareness, That is ultimately making that decision for you. I feel like things like uh, emotions and, uh, you know, just deliberative uh, actions that involve uh, weighing various options in general, kind of make more sense from a logical perspective. Um, Whereas if you think that there's this irreducible choice, it's kind of a puzzle of How one of these factors gets activated versus another one, um, and why these various emotions and other things exist trying to influence that choice when that choice is irreducible uh, and there is something that is not determined by any other factors that is is ultimately going to decide on some, whether you call it arbitrary or not, some non-grounds just decides to go one way or the other.
1: Okay. Uh, Okay, so one thought on that is, I think that there are, there are are grounds for going either way, like going back to the sleep example, trying to get to sleep. So I think there are, I, I have this sense, at least sometimes, that it would be better for me to focus on the breath and that sense motivates me to focus on the breath. And sometimes I do. But I also have a a, a desire there something motivating me to just let my wine water because some it's it's interesting to think about what happened during the day sometimes. I wanna um re experience that in my mind and so I'm I'm pulled in in both directions. And it's it's up to me, I, and I might also sense that it's it's better to to go in one direction than the other. So, but either way I go, there was a motive. There was something pulling me there. It wasn't just arbitrary. You could say, well, if I if I focused on the breath, well, it's because I thought it was more important to get to sleep. And, and I thought it was good for me to get to sleep. If I indulged, you know, my thoughts about what happened during the day, well, it's because that was exciting, and it was enjoyable to re-experience that. So it, there's a reason either way you you, you go. Um, but I, I, but simultaneously, I think there's I, I have the sense that one of those reasons is is more important to side with. And uh, and so I, I guess I, I, f- I feel better about going that way rather than the other, at least in certain cases.
0: But that um, feeling didn't determine you to go that way. There's still some underlying, I just chose factor. In addition to those reasons, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. So I guess the the uh, maybe the arbitrariness. There's a way to say, well, it's not really arbitrary. Whichever way you go, there's there's a reason that explains why you did it. Um, but uh, there's also a, a sense in which there is no answer to the why. It's just a brute choice. Um, and I know uh Dr. Peakoff says this in a certain passage of his book, Objectivism, and the Philosophy of Ayn Rand, which he, he uh I think I can find pretty quickly where that is in chapter 2, he says, uh, this is on page 60, uh, it is invalid to ask, why did a man choose to focus? There is no such why. There is only the fact that a man chose. He chose the effort of consciousness, or he chose non-effort and unconsciousness. In this regard, every man at every waking moment is a prime mover. So um, he says it's actually uh, invalid to ask for a why. That's just the nature of a primary choice. If there were a why, then I guess it wouldn't be a primary choice. Um,
0: yeah. So that so that's maybe kind of what I'm getting at. So I. If there was such a primary choice, I agree that there can't be a why for it. It has to be just you chose, right? Um, So then I guess I'm left deciding between these two hypotheses about how the mind works, right, of in one hypothesis, there is this primary choice that is, in some sense, unmotivated, there's no why. You just do it. And then in the second model of the mind, or the, the second hypothesis is that choice does have a why, but it's below the level of consciousness. It's something that happens in your brain that you aren't able to introspect. And so if, if you think that so to me, the second, just introspectively and in terms of my limited knowledge of neuroscience and psychology, the second possibility seems more plausible to me. Uh, so I'm curious, what what is the grounds for accepting the first hypothesis rather than the second, the second one? The grounds for thinking that there's really this primary choice that you just make that has no why versus it's just something that there is a why that you don't know what it is.
1: Yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's an interesting question. I, I guess one might say to that, well, the grounds are just introspective. It, it just seems to, when I introspect that I'm just making this primary choice, uh, I wasn't forced to go one way or rather than the other. I just did go one way. And uh, I guess if you were to Take the other hypothesis that well really there was there was something in my brain that that is that forced me to go one way um well you would need evidence i don't know what what would be how would you establish that so you mentioned neuroscience and uh but I don't know how, how neuroscience would, would establish that. I'm not very familiar with neuroscience. Um, and I, I know that some neuroscientific data that has been used to challenge free will has also been itself challenged. So there's the famous Libet's experiments of uh, like you move your, you're instructed to move your finger at at random and people say that they chose at a certain time to move their finger, but then because of these electrodes that are hooked up to the scalp or whatever, uh, the researchers see, oh, there was actually something in the brain that happened prior to the time that the person reported making the decision. And maybe it was that prior thing that happened in the brain which caused them to move their finger at a certain time. Um, so that, th- these sorts of interpretations of the Libet experiments have been challenged. Uh, in particular, there's a book by uh, Al Mealy. He's a philosopher at Florida State who's written a book called Free Will, which takes on these uh, Libet experiments. And he thinks that they don't they don't show that there's a lack of free will. Um, now it's there's certainly I, I think plausibly there's always stuff going on in the brain and um, I I I don't doubt that's corresponding to either of the paths you could go to, could select between like if if we're selecting between letting your mind wander and um, staying on task of focusing on your breathing. uh, I have no doubt that there's something that correlates to both of those paths going on in the brain. But then if you're actually going to establish the truth of the hypothesis that it was something in the brain that caused you to go one way rather than the other, I, I'm not aware of any neuroscience that's, that has shown that and there's also the um the whole issue of the contradiction of determinism is it even coherence to suppose there could be um, you know objective knowledge that we're determined uh, so how does that argument go? It's the contradiction of determinism argument. So I guess there's there's an implied claim when you say determinism is true, that you have knowledge of this fact, but how do you know, how can you say you know it as opposed to you're just forced to believe it by some deterministic factor? So you might think there's there's philosophical grounds, you know, independent of any Science to think, well, there just couldn't be knowledge that really determinism is the right hypothesis to explain um, so which path. Uh,
0: you know I've seen that that type of argument uh in objective literature, and it's usually followed up with uh We've shown that there's a contradiction in believing determinism. But this doesn't demonstrate that free will is true. The proof or validation or whatever term you want to use for free, for free will is your direct introspective experience, right? And it's so there is the direct introspective experience of, yes. OK, so, so maybe what I'm trying to get at is what exactly is that direct introspective experience? And does it prove that there is this irreducible choice, or is it compatible with some other interpretation, right? Because um, it's not—it's not quite an experience like I see this cup, therefore the cup is there, right? I don't think the introspective experience of volitional choice is quite like that. It's more—you experience certain things, and then you infer conceptually that this means that there is a an introspective choice. And this maybe gets to the arguments about the self and things like that, like you don't directly perceive the self, but maybe you perceive various uh, other things that conceptually lead to this idea of of a self, right? Um, But it seems to me that the introspective experience of exerting effort and of uh, perceiving an alternative and of making a decision without any conscious uh, determining factor there, that's basically the evidence for volition. And it seems like that uh, introspective data is also compatible with other interpretations, uh, such as the interpretation that there are non-volitional systems that determine the outcome, right? Um, Yeah, so I guess it's just. It seems like it could go either way and then and then it becomes kind of so I get the, the contradiction of determinism argument um and I'm sensitive to that, but if you go the on the level lower than that of what is the introspective data for that for uh, volitional choice, it seems like it's not decisive to me
1: uh, yeah I don't know if it is uh i guess so one thought that comes to mind is. Uh, Is there like a default, like between those two hypotheses, um, should we default to just taking the introspective data at face value rather than defaulting the other way that, you know, something in the brain forced you to go one way rather than the other, Um, which, which if either Of those two explanations, should we default to um, another thought? Is about the cup. You said, well, it's not like the um, seeing a cup here. Um, I guess the idea that being that, you know, that's stronger evidence. We can take that at face value. But I don't know, can we? I mean, I think a similar style of argument is is uh, made against arguments f- in favor of there's an external world. So, you know, Descartes famously said, well, it's, it's compatible with everything that I observe that I'm in a dream, that I'm dreaming right now, or that I'm deceived by some evil demon. Um, yeah, it seems like there's a cup here, but there might not really be a cup, it just could be a figment of my imagination. I could be you know, just in the matrix or something. Um, maybe I'm just a brain in a vat. Uh, so sh- should we default to just taking at face value that um, things are as they appear uh, there really is a cup, and we really do have this volitional control. And the burden is on the person who denies that. Uh, is, that is that the right way to structure the dialectic here? Um, I I, uh, I guess I have the... I feel like saying, yeah, <laughs> the burden should be on the person who wants to say there's an evil demon and there's not really a cup here, or the the person who says, you know, this call could just be a dream, or the one who says, oh, it's really the brain who's making us decide this. Um, I guess because the, the prima fascia, on first glance, things seem to be a certain way. It, it doesn't seem like I have no evidence that the brain is causing me to choose one way. Now maybe you can, you can do your neuroscience, setting aside the whole worries about contradiction of determinism. Maybe you can take me into your neuroscientific lab and show me, okay, well this is why you should believe it really is the brain. But that's a burden you have to discharge. You have to take me into your lab and show me. I shouldn't uh, default to that. Um, likewise with the dream case, uh, it's, so I think, I think that the dreaming case at least is an arbitrary, there's no evidence in favor of thinking that you are dreaming. Um, you would have to provide some evidence to establish that, um, do, do you need evidence that you're not dreaming or is that asking someone to prove a negative? If so, I think there's a there's a logical reason that uh, you wouldn't, that's not a burden you need to satisfy. Um, likewise, uh, do I need to prove that there's not something in my brain that's causing me to go one way rather than the other? Or is that asking someone to prove a negative? Um, so these are some of the considerations that come to mind. In, in thinking about this issue of how do we decide between these two hypotheses, I think, I, I tend to think that the burden, because of where the prima facie evidence is, that the burden is on the person who wants to say it's the brain, and absent any of that evidence, that it actually is the brain that's making the choice, it's, it's reasonable to default to the idea that it's this mind, and furthermore, I haven't been exposed to any neuroscientific evidence that makes me think, yeah, it really is the brain, so I should uh, ignore my prima facie evidence that it's my mind and go with the, the other hypothesis. I haven't seen any evidence that makes me think, yeah, I should really, now people you know, like the or at least some interpreters of Labette say, yeah, there is neuroscientific evidence, but I haven't been convinced by that. And people like Mealy and others, Uh, haven't been convinced, so um, I guess ignoring the whole contradiction of determinism issue, I guess I would want to say I'm open in principle to the idea that that, the brain hypothesis, let's call it, could be right, but I just haven't been exposed to that evidence, so by default I side with the prima facie evidence that it's the mind that's choosing the path.
0: Okay that makes sense. Uh, so let me i'll I'll make a couple of comments on that, and then I think we're getting close to two hours so maybe we can can wrap up um, so you had mentioned uh, by our, our correspondence before this that you had you had watched uh, Leonard Peikoff's lecture on Hume when he was talking about the self, and I went back and and listened to that as well before this. And I think that is, to some extent, relevant here. Uh, So earlier in that lecture, Peekoff was talking about Hume's argument for the nonexistence of the external world, essentially. And uh, I think it's interesting that Peekoff's counter to Hume in that case is different from his counter to Hume on the self. Peekoff's argument for the existence of the external world and entities is essentially that we directly perceive them um, so that the argument for the existence of this cup is, pers- I perceive this cup as a unified entity, and that's my direct level of awareness of it, right? And I can analyze it by saying it's it's clear, it's got glass, you know, it has a certain texture, but that is analysis of the direct perception of the entity, right? And then later, when uh, he's talking about the self, you know, Hume makes this argument that we don't perceive. A self inside our our heads. We perceive just experiences of different things, and uh, Peacock's argument is that all of those di- we can integrate all of those different uh, perceptions, find some some commonalities between them, and uh, infer conceptually that there must be an entity that is doing the experiencing. Right. So it's kind of a different a different argument. One is this is just here. I directly perceive it. And one is, I have this evidence that I've integrated conceptually, and now I've decided that this thing exists, right? And I think the, to me, it seems like the argument for volition from introspective experience is closer to the second case than the first case, where we don't directly perceive something called volition. Uh, We don't directly perceive that there are alternatives and that we could metaphysically go either way. And that if I went back in time, I could have made a different choice, that sort of thing, right? We perceive uh, sort of potentialities. We perceive effort. We perceive that there is no uh, conscious choice underneath our action to go one way or the other. Uh, And based on that, we infer that there is this thing that we call volition that means there's this irreducible choice to go to go either way. And I feel like uh, in contrast to the direct perceptual entity of the cup, which you can't really get under, you can only analyze it, that type of inference uh, that conceptual argument for the existence of something uh, is subject to being integrated with all of our other knowledge, including neuroscience and psychological experiments and and all that and you mentioned a few of those and why they're maybe not decisive but it seems to me that uh, you know again not not necessarily decisive, but if you take evolutionary biology and what knowledge we do have of the brain as a system with various, um, you know, parts that perhaps evolved at different times and interact with each other in a sort of distributed way. And then these experiments in psychology, uh, other things that, you know, Harris mentions these like split brain experiments and things like that. Uh, It all sort of adds up to, I think, it integrates better with the idea that there is something underlying this this choice, that this thing that we uh, called volition actually refers to some underlying brain process rather than this irreducible uh, choice. and you know the jurys the jury's out I guess, as as evidence comes in on either side of that that argument it, it may swing one way or the other. but it seems to me the kind of thing that you have to integrate with all, the, all your other evidence and decide on that basis, rather than actually something we directly perceive like a physical entity in the world.
1: Okay. Uh...
0: But I do see your point that uh, if, you, if you were somebody 500 years ago or something like that, you, have, you don't understand what the brain does, you don't have any of the psychological evidence, it makes sense, I think, for you to say, I perceive this decision going one way or the other. I per- that feels different to me than these sort of automatic things that happen in my mind, emotions popping in randomly, et cetera. Therefore, I'm going to hypothesize that there is there's something fundamentally different about that, and there's no prior pause. Um, but I feel like in a modern context where we have more scientific knowledge, that hypothesis becomes less plausible. Um, But I I also get the sense that objectivism would not see this as a hypothesis, that they, Rand and and other objectivist philosophers would take the view that you directly experience this uh, thing called volition. And I'm not sure that I I agree with that uh, just based on my own introspective experience.
1: So you would say, uh... Well, just on the basis of your own introspective experience, uh, it doesn't even seem... See, a lot of determinists will acknowledge that at least seems that they have free will, and but then they'll just go on to say, well, it's just an illusion. Why? Well, because we've got this neuroscientific evidence like Lebet's that shows um, that it's we're really not free when we think we are.
0: Yeah. So this but it is something still,
1: still seems like it at least. But are you saying? Yeah. It sounds like you're you're maybe going beyond them and saying it doesn't even seem introspectively.
0: Yeah. So that's essentially the argument that Harris makes. Not I don't think he makes it in his book on free will, but he makes it in the you know the waking up book and in the meditation course that I think one of his phrases is the illusion of free will is itself an illusion or something like that, right? So he thinks that if you really examine introspectively what's going on when you think you're making a volitional choice, the experience isn't, isn't decisive uh, in the sense that it, So he might say actually that it doesn't even feel like there is a grounds for hypothesizing that there is a volitional choice. I'm I'm not sure that I agree with that, but uh, I think he would definitely say that that introspective evidence is not decisive. That it doesn't. There is a feeling of uh, voluntary choice, but that that doesn't. The experience there doesn't imply volitional choice and doesn't necessarily even seem like the kind of thing that is an irreducible, non-deterministic choice made by some central entity that you call yourself.
1: Hmm. I guess that's, um, maybe that's an outlier view that, I mean, if he is saying it doesn't even seem like, uh, upon close inspection, it doesn't even seem like there's something that people traditionally mean by free will. Um, I, I think that's, that's a tough, <laughs> tough uh, claim to support. I mean, I, I think a lot of people would say, it's just, it's just obvious, there's just a mountain of evidence to the contrary. Right now, I, I am freely controlling, I'm not having a spasm right now my hand is not twitching. I am controlling this damn thing. At least it sure as hell, it didn't seem like a twitch. That's that's the contrast. It's by contrast with a spasm or a twitch that it seems like I, I'm controlling this. I mean, I, I think it might be a stolen concept to say everything is automatic. Where do you get this notion of automatic is set by contrast with your experience of something that's non-automatic, something that seems volitional. Where did you Harris get this idea that everything is determined by contrast to what? Um, Don't you need a foil? So I'm not sure, um, I I don't know what he would say to that. I don't know if he's got this, um, I call it the contrast argument.
0: Yeah, so I think the idea is, in. so there is an experience of that uh, you know, kind of voluntary hand motion as being different from a muscle spasm, right, but I think his his point, whether it 's true or not, is that if you really focus your mind in some sense and introspect the act of doing this and the signature that it has in your mind, you see causes for it that aren't apparent, uh, if you're not, if you're not actively, uh, you know, kind of deeply introspecting in that way. And at the deepest level, when you get to something that feels like it's just, uh, causeless, like the sort of irreducible choice, um, it seems to just happen and you don't know why it happens, right? I think he talks about this a little bit in the free will book, like he talks about making, various uh decisions throughout his day and he's just like i don't know why i made that decision it just happened And i think that's kind of the point is like if i so imagine i have my hands so this is kind of like the the experiment right i guess i have my hand here and at some point i'm going to raise my hand, right i experienced that raising of my hand as voluntary but why did i raise it now, instead of half a second earlier or half a second before that, right, it seems like there has to be some cause there, and then if you go backward in the causal chain to the thing that seems irreducible it it seems like something that just happens. I think that's that's the argument anyway. Um, so yeah that's that's what I found intriguing about this this kind of meditation material is uh, I had never seen that argument before. I'd always seen the arguments that, well, yeah, it does seem like we have free will. But there's this other evidence that seems to contradict it. And I was never that convinced by that. Uh, But if introspectively, it doesn't even seem like there is this volitional choice, if it seems like your introspective experience is more compatible with deterministic brain systems kind of doing their thing, then that's kind of a totally different class, class of argument. Um, And I'm not 100% convinced of that. That's what I'm trying to kind of work through, I guess. But uh, I would say, you know, as I get deeper into this this, uh, material, I become sort of more convinced that that model fits the introspective evidence better. Again, without being able to share our introspective evidence and point to Here's what we're seeing or feeling or whatever it's it's hard, but uh that's that's the basic idea.
1: I think there is some I don't know if this the the hand motion is the best example to use because um, you know that's not most of this conversation we've been talking about the primary choice to think or to focus as being like the the, the irreducible primary choice, not the choice to move your hands this way or that. Um, So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it does seem, when I introspect on this hand motion, it does seem like, it doesn't feel like a spasm. It feels like I'm controlling it but it also isn't the primary choice. I guess I've already chosen to focus on having this discussion and this seems like maybe it would be an example to illustrate some aspect of the discussion so I use it. Um, So maybe the, the hand motion would be, in this instance, it would be a secondary choice I think there's an interesting question on exactly how does, how does secondary choices relate to primary choices? Um, You did, you did ask the question like, well, why did I choose to move the hand now rather than a half a second later? And I mean, is the answer to that because something happened in my brain now rather than half, half a second later, or is it, or should one rather say, well, it's just because I chose to move it now rather than half a second later, and I think um, maybe the maybe this again gets to the uh, these two hypotheses. Like introspectively, the reason uh, I chose to move it now rather than half a second later is, is because it seems that I just chose. To move it now um and then you can float the competing hypothesis well it's because something in your brain made it happen now rather than half a second later okay but then isn't the burden on the person who wants to say that to provide the neuroscientific evidence and maybe it is um i guess it is because you don't have direct access to the fact that you even have a brain um So you first need to discover that and then show that there actually was something in the brain that made it impossible for you to decide to move it at a different time. So I I think this might again, be a burden of proof issue. Um, I guess uh, two other thoughts. One is just one for now. Um, I mentioned earlier how maybe you could get yourself into a state where it really is the brain that's causing you to do one thing rather than the other, but that's because, that might be because you've already decided to surrender the reins of your mind. And then once you've made that choice, then you just have these competing factions, these modules of your brain, maybe, um, so I think it, it it could be that the brain is, like so maybe Harris is the type of person, I don't know, who, who surrenders his mind. Uh, and then he, once he's made that choice, he surrenders the reins of mind, then he introspects and observes that it doesn't seem to be him that's causing him to do one thing rather than the other. And then he comes back and reports, oh, well, my introspective experience when I paid really close attention is that uh, it's not really me in control. There is no um, free will here. So there is an illusion of an illusion of free will. But I, you know, is that just because he's introspecting after he's made the choice to let his mind drift? But that choice to let his mind drift, was it? He made that choice freely? Maybe. Um, anyways, that's that's some okay. thoughts on the last segment.
0: All right. Yeah. So that's probably a pretty decent place to wrap up. Now I'd be interested, uh, aside from all this, just if you could give a brief description of kind of what your research was on specifically in your in your graduate work.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh well, as a master's student. I wrote a thesis on a certain theory of free will. I think I might actually have it here. I don't know if you can read the uh, spine there. O'Connor's, O'Connor's Agent Puzzle Theory Agent. of Free okay. Will. Um, so that was, it's I was
0: official?
1: Yeah, that's the the official logo of California State University, Long Beach. Okay. And... Uh, so he's a, what's what's called a libertarian about free will, so there are different, uh, broadly speaking, um, there are compatibilists and incompatibilists, that's one way at least to divide up the landscape on people who uh, are engaged in the free will debates. So the compatibilists, they argue that free will and determinism are actually compatible. <laughs> They're not mutually exclusive, and which is kind of the assumption we've been having during this di- this discussion. There's this there's these two opposed views. Either you can favor f- that there's free will, or re- or that there's everything is determined. But the compatibilists, which actually are the majority among academic philosophers, and I think they have been for decades, um, have argued. Actually, you don't have to choose between these. We're both free and determined. Um, but then I I would argue that they're, what they call free isn't really freedom. Um, sometimes they gloss it as being able to do what you want to do, even if you're forced to do. Uh, so they'll contra- contrast being constrained, like physically in chains. Um, so you're not free if you're in chains or if you're in jail, but um, you are free, uh, I guess within the jail, as long as you can choose to walk from one side of the prison to the other or something, nothing's constraining you to the wall. You can at least go around. Um, now they might say, well, still, well, it's cause you had a desire to walk to one side of the room rather than the other. And that's what uh, caused you to um, walk around. So you couldn't have done otherwise um, in some sense, but they do say that you could have done otherwise in the sense that if you had a different desire, you could have uh, not walked across the room. So they try to, I think they change the meaning of terms in order to get their compatibilism to work. I don't think it's successful in the end, but anyways, there's there's a lot of uh, philosophers who try to integrate free will and determinism, as well as moral responsibility, so they think, you can both be determined and also be morally responsible, which I again doesn't don't think works. But they they try to integrate them. Um, but they, this this guy's theory, Timothy O'Connor, who I was writing about, he's not in the compatibilist camp. He's an incompatibilist. So I agreed with him on that. But then within the incompatibilist camp, uh, there are. There are subcamps. so there's broadly three. There's the agent causalists, the event causalists, and the non-causalists, and uh, he is an agent causalist. So he will explain actions in terms of an agent. So why did, uh, why did some event happen? Well, it's simply because some agent caused it to happen. A self, you might say. Um, it's not because there was some events like, um, the coming to be of a desire in one's mind, a desire to move my arm, suppose, in that event is what caused my arm to move. Rather, it was simply me, the agent who caused my arm to move. I am the cause of the arm's motion.
0: Yeah. So that kind of gets to what we were talking about with why did I move my hands now versus half second prior right was there an event that caused me to move my hand at that point or did i just do it and you can't get below that or ask why it just is right
1: right it's just an irreducible cause the agent on the agent causalist view and i i'm not sure that's uh like i i don't know that. I would put myself in one or the other of those camps. I think that might be a false alternative. And for a while I thought I was, I'm in the agent-causal camp and I know some other objectivists, philosophers who have, it seems like they, they're they inclined towards the agent-causal view, agent-causal libertarian view. Um, for anyone who doesn't know the term libertarian, it's not the political kind of libertarian. There's a special use of the term libertarian within um, the free will literature that um, simply means you have the power to do A or non-A in a given set of circumstances. Uh, you could have done otherwise in a given set of circumstances. Um, so, uh, But in further researching exactly what the agent-causal libertarians take their view to be, I I kind of uh, wanted to get off the bus, off the agent-causal bus, and I, I had some reservations about it. Um, so what I do in this thesis is I critique uh, one agent, probably, maybe the most prominent agent-causal libertarian theory I could find in the academic literature. I raised some objections to it and proposed some alternative ways of thinking about Free will, so that it's from one perspective, it is an agent that causes things, but from another perspective, uh, there is an event that causes actions at a certain time. Uh, So that was my master's work, and then for my PhD work, I shifted my focus to another, um, maybe nearby area of philosophy called the philosophy of minds, which deals with the metaphysical status of the mind or consciousness. The the big question which um, I address is, is the mind physical or is consciousness physical or material? So you'll have materialists who think that, again, science, like a lot of people in the free will literature, they they say, well, uh, scientific, evidence tells us that determinism is true. Likewise, in the philosophy of mind literature, a lot of people think that scientific evidence tells us that materialism is true, or a term used more more often these days is physicalism is true. The mind is something physical, or the consciousness is physical. So uh, I don't have a copy of my my dissertation here right now. I've got one ordered on the way, but the title of it is a critique of the scientific case for physicalism. So I look into the scientific arguments that philosophers have given. In particular, there's two. Let's see the uh, David Papineau. Yeah, here's the book. Um, he wrote a book called Thinking About Consciousness. And he is the main, he was actually on my committee. Um, He's the main person who I engage in debate with in the dissertation. He's maybe the most prominent person who's arguing that there's scientific evidence that the mind is physical. And I address his arguments. I argue that his arguments don't work. And um, they, So there's prima facie evidence that the mind is non-physical and there's not good scientific evidence to overturn that prima facie evidence. Um, So it's reasonable. It's just the default to what might be called the dualist position where you've got just two irreducibly different things. You've got mental stuff and physical stuff, or you could maybe put it in terms of properties, you have mental properties and physical properties, and neither is reducible to the other. So this is often called dualism. So, and dualism, it comes in different forms. There's substance dualism, there's property dualism. Uh, Descartes famously is a substance dualist, holding that the mind is some kind of substance or entity. Um, in his view, it can exist apart from the body. Uh, that's what a substance is. It's a can exist on its own, it's self-subsisting. I don't accept that kind of dualism, but um, I think uh, at least prima fascia, there's, there's reason to think that mental properties are different than physical properties. For instance, your mind might have the property of being confused about something, but can physical stuff like atoms be confused? Well, that might seem kind of weird. How can atoms be confused? I can see how a mind can be confused, but can like material stuff be confused? Not clear that they can be. Um, In materialists, they have arguments to try to establish. Yeah, in the end, it might seem weird at first. And Papineau acknowledges this, um, that he takes on this burden, but he acknowledges, yeah, the materialist has a burden. It's not intuitive that the mind is a physical thing. And I think he and um, many others uh, think that there's a prima facie case for dualism and that there's a burden uh, on the physicalist to establish that the mind is physical, but they think they can meet that burden. And he he tries to argue um, in his book that there actually is good evidence. There's a famous argument called the causal argument that he runs. Um, and so a big part of my dissertation is addressing the causal argument. One of its premises in particular Uh, called the causal closure of the physical. uh, The idea that for every physical cause, there's a physical effect that can account for, sorry, for every physical effect, there's a physical cause that can account for the physical effect. So if a molecule swerves in a certain way, that's a physical effect. Well, according to this principle of causal closure, there's some physical cause that led to that molecule swerving. You don't ever need to appeal to anything non-physical to explain any any physical effect that happens in the world. And that's a, a key principle that's used in this, what's called the causal argument. And I challenge that that principle and I say that there's actually not good evidence for it and therefore the, the causal argument doesn't work. And therefore, and, that, and that's the key argument for physicalism that Papineau uses. So I say the argument for physicalism doesn't work. So that is uh, my dissertation and master's thesis in uh, maybe not a nutshell. I went on for a while there, but.
0: Yeah, so would you agree that uh, at some point as neuroscience and just physics evolves, we will ultimately have to discover some new, I think Harry Binswanger has called it a new force of nature or just something that we do don't currently know of that somehow our model of physics is incomplete, and that someday we're going to discover something that explains oh here's how mental uh, entities or events or you know the whole conscious world acts on the physical brain and vice versa.
1: I at least wouldn't want to rule that out. Uh... So it's in his uh, Metaphys- Metaphysics of Consciousness course where he mentions that um, that there, there is this scientist will discover this new force of nature. Um, I, I guess he gets to this conclusion by first arguing that there's just this irreducible difference between... Consciousness and matter matter is not consciousness, and consciousness is not matter. There's just two distinct things, they have these different properties, like I was talking about. One can be clear or confused, or, whereas matter can't be clear or confused. So, first, he establishes that there's this difference in properties between consciousness and physical stuff, and then furthermore um, he is, he he says, well, consciousness has causal efficacy. Uh, it's not just this epiphenomenon, which has no causal power. Um, when I move my hands, it's caused by my, my mental aspect or properties. My mind causes my arm to move and my mind is not physical. So there must be some non-physical force that's causing this physical uh, event in the world, and you know you, you trace the, the the causation back. Like you could say, oh well, my my hand is moving because my shoulder muscle uh, flexed, and that that flexed because you know some neurons fired in my my shoulder, and that those neurons fired because some neurons in my motor cortex in my brain fired. So you can trace it back, but at a certain point, you can't trace it to anything physical, at least if you're gonna take it at face value that your mind was the ultimate cause of this. uh, You were a prime mover in getting your arm to move and it was your mind that caused your arm to move and your mind is not physical because there are these property differences between the mind and physical stuff. So there must be a non-physical force, the force of your mind. So maybe, he, he mentions in his lecture that well maybe if you trace it back far enough there will be some electron in the brain that swerves in a way that you can't be accounted for by the other physical forces operating on it. throw you know factor in all the electromagnetic forces, force of gravity, um, all the physical forces which are known to operate in the rest of the world, well, um, add all those up, you're still not gonna be able to explain why this particle in, in the brain swerved um, because we know that your mind caused your arm to move, it has causal efficacy and your mind is not physical because it has these property differences. So there must be some non-physical force. So this is gonna be the new physical force that he thinks we discovered. And I mean, I think that's a, um, a reasonable, view to hold. I don't have an argument against it. I, I'm I'm sympathetic to that view myself. Um, so it's, I mean it, just saying it, it sounds a little uh, weird <laughs> um, or kooky, uh, but maybe it shouldn't. I don't know if it always feels like that. Yeah, I mean, me.
0: it, I think it's uh, that sort of so I, I think I agree with that argument as well. Uh, I think it just maybe sounds weird, because it's, it's ambitious to think that philosophically, we've proven that physics is incomplete in some, in some way, right? Uh, but yeah, I, I don't really see a way around that personally. Um, if consciousness is real and has causal efficacy, it seems like some sort of force like that will have to be discovered at some point.
1: And to throw in another premise, it's not reducible to something physical. Because a lot of physicalists these days, right. they they will grant consciousness is real, consciousness has causal efficacy, but then they add to that that consciousness is physical. So um, you don't get to a new physical, physical you don't get to a new sense. force.
0: Yeah. Do you mean... Uh, physical in the sense that it's identical with brain processes, or physical in the sense that it's something else, but something that is, is explainable in terms of physical laws that we, we understand now, like maybe quantum mechanical uh, randomness or something like that. I, I don't know. I've, I've heard vague speculation to that, that sort of effect, but I'm not familiar with that literature.
1: I think different physicalists may say different things to that. A common thing they will say is, the mind is the brain or brain processes. Um, I think there's a, what's the title? There's a famous article by JJC Smart called Sensations as Brain Processes, I believe. Um, So that's one common view uh, but, you know, others might be more particular about a certain aspect of the brain. The mind is, or they might say pain is C-fibers firing. That's a classic example from the 50s or around there that a lot of people used. I don't know if anyone still holds that, but some people will try to specify it more more exactly. But some, like Papineau, uh, will put it more negatively, he'll say, the mind is uh, identifiable with something, uh, identifiable non-mentally. So he puts that term non in front of mental and just says, there's something non-mental that the the mind is equivalent to. So anything you explain by reference to the mind, you could also explain by reference to something non-mental. So when I move my arm, You can explain that by saying, well, I had a desire that caused me to move my arm. I wanted to move it, and so it moved. Or you could explain the same thing by saying, in terms of non-mental stuff, instead of talking about desires causing me to move my arm, you could say, well, something in my motor cortex fired, and that's ultimately, some molecule in my motor cortex uh, swerved, and that's what led to a chain of events other events we could also talk in terms of uh, other events we could also identify non-mentally without talking about desires or beliefs. Um, So any action, any effect in the physical world can be uh, explained by some non-mental cause. You might also be able to give a mental explanation, but, um, but, uh, Instead of saying that the, you know, the I, I think he tries to, uh, I guess, maybe ward off some objections by not saying exactly what it is physically, um, but just say it's something non-mental um, that explains all our physical actions. So we know that the mind is identifiable with something non-mental. The, the mind has effects. He grants that. But since those effects can be explained by non-mind phenomena like neurons firing, and we don't wanna say there's like a duplicate of causes, both the mind and the non-mental stuff are causing it. That would be what's called over-determination. That would be weird to say any given action like the motion of my arm has two, two simultaneous causes that have like independent origin um, both the mind and uh, the neurons are causing this one event. That would be a weird coincidence. It's kind of like um, uh, the example that's sometimes used in, in the literature for explaining overdetermination is uh, a firing squad, death by firing squad. So you've got all these people lined up and they all at the same time shoot a bullet into one guy. Well, what was the cause of the death? Well, you could say it was the first guy's gun or the second guy's or the third guy's. Any any bullet by itself would on its own have sufficed um, to bring about the death, we can suppose, for the sake of argument. But if you have multiple uh, such causes, you have what's called overdetermination. You have more than you need to deter- determine, bring about a certain physical effect. Well, that's a very... Unusual kind of case. Normally, there's not this kind of overdetermination in the world. Um, and Papineau says, "Well, it'd be weird to think that every time I move my arm, it's like the firing squad, where even if there hadn't been this decision to move my arm, I still would have moved my arm. Um, and likewise, even if the the neuron in my brain hadn't fired in my motor cortex, I still would have moved my arm." Um, he says, "No, it, it's weird. You need." It, You need both of those, Uh, you need the neuron to fire and you also need the decision. But it would be weird to say there's two independent, that those are two independent lines of causation causing your arm to move, so they must be the same thing. We must be able to identify the mental cause with the physical cause in order to avoid this weird situation of one and the same physical effect, namely the arm moving, having two independent lines of causation. The only way to avoid that um, is by identifying those two causes and saying really there's, there's only one cause there. Maybe the consider from different perspectives, like there's the introspective perspective uh, from which it seems to be a mental cause. And then there's an the extrospective perspective which the scientists can study in the lab and uh, he, he'll talk in terms of neurons firing and so forth. Um, but they're really talking about the same thing but they're kind of opaque to each other. Um, you can't realize by introspecting that you're introspecting on the same thing that the neur- neuroscientist is studying in his lab um, but that's nevertheless the conclusion that you have to reach unless you're going to accept something like overdetermination. So I've been
0: in that sort of view do you know if he would think that non-brain processes also have a sort of mental component to them? Or is it somehow only the structure of the brain network that produces this dual uh, perspective? Like if I have a, a rock sitting on the ground, is there a mental side to that as well that's identical with the physical rock just sitting there?
1: I believe he would say no there there's no grounds for ascribing mentality to rocks um, there but there there is a there is direct grounds for thinking that humans are, and I think he would say other organisms too um, so yeah, it's the idea is that uh, all mental stuff is identifiable with something non-mental, but not the reverse. So it's not that all non-mental stuff is also identifiable with something mental. So the mental is a subset of the non-mental. Um, yeah, so it's... Uh, I was just thinking of whether I should go into one other point, but I don't wanna get too off track or
0: yeah, I think we're I think we've probably gone gone long enough, but that's interesting, yeah, I mean that kind of viewpoint, you know I'm not familiar with all the, the academic literature, but that kind of viewpoint seems subject to the criticism that why why does the brain have this mental side, and what's the point of it uh if everything is fully caused by just the the physical parts right what is what is so unique about that particular physical system that it has this mental side, and yet everything is fully caused by the physical side right
1: yeah, I think that's a good question why didn 't we just evolve to have the physical uh, and not this mental i I think he he might address that and say it's somehow an invalid question because if, if the physical is the mental, or sorry, if, if the mental is the physical, um, if it's identical, there, the question of why, there's, why there isn't just one doesn't arise or doesn't even make sense. Like, why, why is there Clark Kent as well as Superman? Why isn't there just Clark Kent? Well, if they're the same person, <laughs> uh, they have to right. be. You have but to- if,
0: you're, if you're talking about them as two different things, or even if you are, you know, you have some grounds to, to talk about them as two different things, even if you ultimately decide that they are the same thing, it seems like that is, on its face, evidence that there are two different things, Right? Um, like the, the very fact that uh, you have this introspective experience of the mental side of things even if it is really just the experience of brain processes uh, it, it seems analogous to the Clark Kent Superman case in, in that yeah they're ultimately the same thing uh, in some fundamental way but there are these different aspects Uh, otherwise you wouldn't have any grounds for having the names Clark Kent versus Superman to ascribe to these having two different names to ascribe to the same thing right
1: yeah I think I had uh, for a while I think I was I was entertaining that objection and I, I might have Written up something and had it as a section in my one of the drafts of one of my dissertation chapters, and I I ultimately didn't use it. I don't remember if that's because I thought of some counter objection that he could come back with, or if I just decided I didn't need. Maybe it was a valid objection, but I just didn't need to raise it. It wasn't relevant to my central theme. So it's been i guess uh too many months away from it to to recall like what the considerations, but I did at least i think I was thinking just what you were describing there um and it is it's a question uh good question to raise, and maybe he has something to say to that, but i'm not sure it's, uh, I could, yeah it's been too long okay. since I've looked well, at it
0: interesting stuff,
1: yeah. Okay, so uh, you wanna finish up here?
0: Yep, do you have any closing thoughts?
1: Closing thoughts, Uh, I don't think so. I'm glad we did this, I enjoyed it. And uh, uh, I've been doing so much on selfishness, but I I do have, there are other aspects of philosophy that I'm interested in, in talking about. So I invite everybody else in the world to, get in touch with me. And if you want to have a philosophical conversation about anything, I invite you to. Uh, if you want to throw in a donation, that will help. Um, and I encourage you to subscribe to my, my channel or follow me on Facebook. I don't usually do this kind of plugging for my own stuff in my videos, but I'm trying to grow my my channel and uh, build an audience and be able to support myself. Uh, you should probably
0: this. do this at the beginning instead of after two and a half hours.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe I should- nobody uh, gets to
0: the, all the way to the end.
1: I should uh, cut this clip up and uh, paste it in the front. Anyways, uh, yeah, so there's my little plug for my, my channel. Do you have anything you'd like to plug here?
0: Nope, nothing to plug. Any, uh, oh, any this other is good words? Nope, oh, this, this was interesting. It was nice to have this sort of conversation with somebody who uh, is deeply familiar with this, this sort of material. Uh, so yeah, this was valuable to me. Hopefully other people will find it interesting if they watch it online later. I apologize for any verbal flubs or uh, lack of clarity in, in my uh, speech. I'm not used to this sort of thing.
1: Uh, no worries. Yeah, I, I uh, stumble around sometimes too. I know in this, in this, this uh, conversation, there has been times where like, you can really see I'm kind of stalling because I'm not sure what to say. Um, but this is difficult stuff. I think it's not always obvious, and it really takes um, thought to get clear. Whether it's volitional or not, you, know, you can be the uh, judge. Um, Okay. All right. Good seeing you. And uh,
0: thanks again for doing this.
1: All right. Bye-bye.